Hello, I'm Rob Birdsell. Welcome to the next class. And I am joined by my new co-host, Nico Anderson. Nico, how are you? Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm good. Looking forward to this season with Hello. you. And welcome to our second guest on the fourth season of the next class, Lincoln Snyder. Lincoln, welcome to the next class. Hey, great to be here. Good to see you, Rob. Good to meet you, Nico. Nice to meet you, Lincoln. So, Lincoln, uh, first, I, I already did this, but I'm going to do it again. Is that a real background or is that a fake background? It is a real background. So this is, uh, you know, we, we uh, be living in the age of Zoom, we decided to take all of our pretty books and put them on one bookshelf for, uh, for on-camera interviews just like this one. I'm impressed because I was going to say, how do you do a fake background on Squadcast? I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> anyway, um, so you're coming to us, Lincoln, from Virginia, if I recall? Yeah, from Arlington, uh, Virginia. So moved to moved to Arlington about a year ago uh, because we reopened an in-person office for the NCEA. So we're we're back uh, on Glebe Road, uh, operating out of the Arlington Chancery here in Arlington, Virginia. That's great. That's great. A big move from Sacramento, though. How's it it is. Doing? You know, well, it just turned out that Sacramento to DC was a lousy commute. So uh, my wife and three sons and I decided we'd take the plunge and have moved to the DC area. We were, my wife went this summer, uh, we went, and it was her first trip to D.C. and absolutely loved it. Uh, such a great city that you get to work in. Although Nico and I are uh, both here in Chicago, and uh, it's a lovely day here. We feel fall coming in Chicago. Absolutely. It's, uh, I'm uh, a big fan of Chicago. Uh, you know, the, it's a big, diverse country, and one of the fun things of the job is just really have gotten a sense of, of just how many neat spots there are. You know, I've taken three cross-country trips over the last year or a uh, year and a half as, as we were in the process of moving and got to visit Catholic schools from, uh, uh, from Lubbock, Texas to uh, New Orleans and uh, East Coast and West Coast and, and all over. So it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a nice education getting to see the so, U.S. from that perspective. Did you drive cross-country three times? Drove cross-country three times. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. I biked it once. Uh, I don't wow. know that I've ever driven it. Uh, <laughs> that's that's impressive. Three times. Uh, but but good use of your job. I mean, you're out there seeing the people. Absolutely. What was your? Alrighty, well, let's jump, jump into it here. Uh, we've got a couple subjects that Nico and I would love to hear your thoughts on. Um, the first, and I know you've told me the story over the years, but you're not a traditional educator by. Like training you didn't start as a teacher and become a principal you 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 had another career to begin with so what what was your what was your first career and how did you then get into education that's a great question and i have been blessed with with two careers that have overlapped at times but uh you know and i did spend four years uh in total as a classroom teacher but i had a career in business so for 13 years i was in sales and marketing for six years i was living in krakow poland working for a big American-owned but but Polish-based uh, manufacturer uh, called Canpac, and uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, we got to spend time in Dubai and the UK and Brazil, and and so it was a wonderful way to spend my twenties. But uh, as as I um, uh, became a family man, you know, so we have a as I said, three teenage sons. I decided that that life was a little bit too fast-paced, so re relocated to Sacramento. Uh, ostensibly to work in a family business, um, which I did for seven years. But uh, my path there took me into Catholic schools uh, just by a chance encounter in the office of my high school I graduated from, Christian Brothers High School, Sacramento, California. Uh, and how, what, how old were you when you, um, when you then 
got into education? That's a great question. So I, I moved back and forth a little bit. The first time I was 25, I had finished a three-year contract in Poland and moved back to Sacramento and um, walked into the office of my old high school. And uh, the summer school principal, who had been my English teacher, told me, you know what, our rhetoric teacher just quit. Glad you're here. If you can steal your mom's curriculum. My mother had been the rhetoric teacher at the same high school. I'll oh, hire really? her. Wait, she, was a, she was a teacher at Christian Brothers. She was. She wow. was. Yeah, she. Uh, yeah, so she had been. She had taught uh, honors American Lit and composition and and a bunch of stuff. And so they uh, they. I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I I know a lot of people have different charismatic experiences with the Lord, and when they talk about their vocation stories, you know, for me, I sincerely believe the the Spirit always talked to me through specific people. And in this case, it was Mr. Jablonski telling me, uh, the com or the rhetoric teacher just quit. Would you like the job? And uh, which evolved into, well, the economics teacher quit. Would you like the job? And so, uh, you know, what started off as a chance encounter turned into a teaching gig, which lasted a couple of years. You know, I know I, I thought at the time I wasn't going to do it forever. So I went from that back to Poland and back into business. Um, but um, but the, the education and the Catholic education bug had bit. And so even in the years when I wasn't in the classroom teaching, I, I stayed involved in a lot of different ways. Uh, that's interesting. And, and I've been to that school in Sacramento Christian Brothers, an amazing school, um, beautiful campus and um, just uh, some, some great work there. Um, and then uh, you've been at NCEA now for two years? Yeah, I've been at NCEA for two years now, a little over two years. You know, pr prior to that, uh, I was uh, superintendent of schools in the in the Diocese of Sacramento is my most recent gig. So I spent six years in a superintendency and that led to the uh ncea gig well it's been a, um, a great two years nico and i do a lot of work with catholic schools and we've seen a, a real resurgence uh the other gig that i've got at amerigo many of our partner schools are, are at capacity um you know schools that had 200 empty seats five years ago now have wait lists mm -hmm. uh, are, are you seeing that trend also uh, at nca you probably got more data than, than i've got more anecdotes but what are, you, what are you seeing from a resurgence standpoint? We are. So we are, it's an, a very interesting time too. I know, so we took an enrollment hit as a system going into the pandemic, but have recovered really strongly since. And there's a couple of things that are uh, operating in Catholic schools favor right now. Uh, one is that we've seen uh, just an in increase in perception, positive perception of Catholic schools and the quality of Catholic education, especially vis-a-vis -vis some of our friends and in districts that were closed during the pandemic, you know, people people were looking for in-person options for their for their kids, um, and so we saw a big uptick because most of our Catholic schools were open during the pandemic. As you know, the first schools in their jurisdiction, you know, the earliest date we could reopen, they did. Um, but what's really positive in that is the retention rates have been very high. So we have the families that came to Catholic schools during the pandemic, we've seen retention rates way over 90% and as high as 98% in some dioceses with all these new families. So, you know, they came because we were open, but then they discovered uh, the quality of the programs. Most importantly, they fell in love with the communities and they've made the decision to, uh, to remain in the Catholic school community. Um, so great time to be at NCEA and, and uh, tell us you've been there two years now. What for our listeners that don't know what NCEA is, maybe first start with what NCEA is, and then then what what are you excited about? What gets you you know for this new school year? What are you you know what are you jazzed about when you get up in the mornings? 
Oh, that's a great question. So NCEA is the trade association for Catholic schools in the U.S. We were incorporated in 1904 uh, as, as the Association for All Schools. So we're not, um, we're not part of the USCCB, though we work hand in glove with USCCB. So the USCCB is the Bishops Association. And we're the Schools Association. So we represent 5,950 schools, plus minus, with over 150,000 employees and 1.7 million kids. Um, so um, school, if you're a Catholic school, you're by default considered a member of the association um, and uh, all of the staff and teachers along with it. So we have a few things, main things we do as a trade association to support our schools. Uh, we are the keepers of the census. So we, we keep that annual and produce that annual data report on the state of Catholic schools. We um, do other research as well that that's really uh, focused on applied research, things that are useful for our members. Uh, we support the schools with public policy. So we have um, a uh, public policy team that under the leadership of uh, Sister Dale McDonald that works with our advocates on the Hill and making sure that we're taking full advantage of federal programs and avoiding the, the tripwires and pitfalls of, of legislation as it comes up. And then uh, we do professional learning. So we have a lot of online resources and we do a couple of really big in-person events every year, one for superintendents and then an annual convention every Easter week for uh, Catholic school teachers and principals. And, and what what are you excited about this year? This year, what I'm excited about is we have just launched or in the process of launching a new content map. So we're, we've taken all of the lessons of COVID and done a lot of listening with our members. And uh, you know we're coming together in October uh, with all of the superintendents, and we're going to be rolling out um, a focus on a few really important themes for our members that I think are the essential ones for Catholic schools. Uh, you know, it's uh, it was a really unpredictable time during COVID, but we responded really well as a system, and so we've got the wind in our sails to some extent. Uh, I know we're going to talk about school choice later, and you know, there, although at the federal level there's not a lot going on right now, there's a lot of action at the state level, um, and we see. I know, I, especially I see some themes emerging as the essential ones for us to face. So, uh, you know, I'm just really excited about um, working with school leaders and schools to to really tackle, uh, talk, sorry, to tackle uh, the, those those big picture items and and uh, stay focused on those. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I've been in this business 30 years, and the the excitement, the resurgence, the enrollment, uh, I haven't seen anything like it in, in 30 years. Um, and uh, I mean, what, what I sense and what I hear is it's, it's quality, it's community. Um, it's, um, you know, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, embracing students with special needs, mm -hmm. uh, an article today is August 30 or September 1st. And so if anyone's looking, the wall street journal had a great op-ed about some Catholic schools, embracing students with special needs, which is new. I mean, um, can you, can you speak to that, Lincoln, um, um, that historically Catholic schools have not, you know, served students with special needs. They've had to go to a public school with all the bells and whistles. But what, what are you seeing with Catholic schools and students with special needs? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I see a real investment in a lot of places and then just an acknowledgement of the need for investment more or less universally now. I think that there was a perception that 30 years ago, maybe with some justification, a family who had a student that had special needs might go to their parochial school and be told, you know, we just don't have the resources to support your student here. Mm -hmm. You know, which, you know, I am just, I can, I can say speaking from 
personal experience is a very heartbreaking answer to receive as a parent. Uh, I, I think that there's two really important things going on. One is there is a culture shift in our schools. I, I think that this gener generation of educators really sees the need to take uh, accommodation from the community perspective uh, and make sure that we do have a place for more and more students. You know, I saw this at the places like Milwaukee, Oregon, 50 year, 15 years ago, um, when uh, the LaSallian High School in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. Oregon put in a program that was really innovative at the time. Um, you know, high schools all over the country are popping up with programs like this now. And it's almost more the question of why we wouldn't have it than, than whether we will. Uh, you know, and in, here in the diocese, uh, diocese of Arlington, the, the diocesan high schools have uh, three tiers of intervention for high school students at all levels, you know, from students with, with more significant learning differences like Down syndrome to kids that just need extra help with, um, with learning support and everything in between. So, and that's the second piece is uh, I think that there's a real buy-in to the notion of making sure that these programs are supported financially. Um, you know, it has to get funded. We can't just want to do it. And, and schools are not just acknowledging that it needs to happen, but they're also making huge investments to bring on new teachers, uh, new leadership, new curricula to make sure that the kids have the support that they need. Um, that, that's, and you're, you're, you said firsthand you have a child with special needs? Yeah, so my oldest son is uh, I'm very proud of him. He's, he was diagnosed with Asperger's. Um, you know, in the, the high school I went to would not have been able to support him at the time, but I would say that, that living here in Arlington, you know, that looking at what, what we've got here in this diocese, oh, these high schools would absolutely be able to accommodate his needs now. So yes. like, even in the last decade, there's been tremendous progress. And, you know, so obviously, uh, you know, my, my wife and I have been very invested in figuring out how to pay it forward for the next generation of students. And, you know, we, we see it coming together way faster than we had imagined was possible. And it's, it's not the next generation of uh, students. I mean, it's the younger siblings of kids that just a few years ago maybe couldn't receive the support they needed that can now be supported in their local Catholic school. That's it's, it's amazing. And you're right, the speed at which it went and, and uh, you know, some great work out of our Catholic universities, Loyola, for example, the Mustard Seeds Project that um, Mike Boyle was involved with, but, um, you know, really um, the rep, uh, the rapid acknowledgement and embracing has been wonderful to see my daughter this summer spent uh the summer as a counselor at an autism camp in colorado mm -hmm. and uh the beauty of they have never said no to a child and uh it, it was challenging but it was a life-changing experience for her and, and these experiences these young people are having today that i mean 30 years ago you would not have heard of a camp like that um so uh, nico do you want to take the next one yeah, of course. So there's been a number of states in the past few years, and we kind of mentioned this uh, earlier, that that uh, have been passing school choice legislation. So can you just tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a, you know, it, it's an interesting topic. And, you know, first of all, just step back and talk about what the Catholic Church feels about school choice. I mean, so we, we are members of a church that is, globally speaking, pro school choice on the behalf of families. So the Catholic Church teaches that a parent, a parent as the primary educator should have access to the best education they feel, you know, is available for their, um, for their child and have state support in doing that. You know, so it's, the United States is kind of set up differently with education than most of our, um, yeah, than, than other countries around the world. You know, in Europe, for example, you've got very different systems. They, they've never really moved away from 
what, what, our, what my friend Ashley Berner calls uh, plural systems of education. So you might have the, you know, in the Netherlands, for example, you might have the local district school next to a Jewish school, next to a Protestant school, next to a Catholic school, next to a non-sectarian school. And the parents have always been able to select the education that they thought was best for their kid. Of course, understanding that there were certain accreditation or standards that have to go with that. Um, so the, the U.S. was a little bit later to this this party, uh, you know, partly that's uh, was born out of, uh, you know, pushback on Catholic education 150 years ago. I don't think we have time to tell that whole story, but it's a fascinating one. Well, and actually, like, I mean, we've we had Catholic public schools 150 years ago. We did. And um, there was just a real consensus uh, starting with you know, as the number of Catholics grew in the U.S. in the 19th century. There was kind of a Protestant reaction to that. And at the time. Most of the common schools, i.e. the local public school, would, was essentially a non-denominational Protestant school. And um, Catholicism clashed with that, and so Catholic students found themselves excluded. We ended up with this huge network of Catholic schools in the U.S. specifically because we felt our kids were being discriminated against. Right? So that's, it's a fascinating story. I mean, NCAA has books on this. Others have published as well. If you don't know the story, look it up. So school choice for us really just is, is um, trying to honor parents and honor that... that um, you know, the church teaching is, you know, the church really wants parents to, as the primary educators, to be able to select the best school for their kids. You know, of course, for us as, as uh, the Catholic school network, you know, we hope uh, that uh, parents would uh, make the choice to send their children to a Catholic school when they have those dollars. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a, again, with the resurgence of Catholic education, we've also seen a, a, I mean, a massive surge in school choice legislation, and not just for low-income students, which historically has been the the, the movement, we're seeing universal choice now in states like Indiana, Florida, Arizona, where 99% of families are now getting vouchers or tax credits, which is which is new. I mean, that's that's very new um, to uh, to the movement. And um, uh, I, I do wonder if uh, funds like the Drexel Fund that have been helping to expand quality schools using vouchers, you know, that if you're if you're in Minnesota and you hear about these schools in Milwaukee that you would like in Minnesota, it's real simple. You got to pass a voucher because you can't have these schools without the voucher. Uh, so um, the supply side seems to be helping with the legislation, I, I think. Um, it does. And I mean, over 30 states now have some form of choice program. And some are big and some are small. Like the one in Florida is huge and has just continued to grow. Um, and, but and in, there's different ways that they get set up. So in the early days, some of them were vouchers, but now there's things like tax credits or educational savings accounts. So, um, you know, it's uh, depending on what state you're, you're you're living in, Google it, you know, it might be set up one of several ways, uh, but they all have the same intent, which is empowering uh, parents to have more choices for their student. You know, education is very expensive. And, um, you know, the the preferential option for the poor is really important for us as the church. So a lot of a lot of the early programs were means tested, but um, you know, as you said, Rob, uh, a lot of them aren't anymore. It's just a universal benefit, and you know, the, as church, we're fine with that too. Again, it just supports the idea of parents having, you know, having having the the having the choice that that they should to pick the best school for their kids. Um, sort of in this vein, uh, Nico and I last year had Jeb Bush, Governor Bush, on the podcast, and he talked about a new movement in alignment with school choice, and he referred to it as class choice. Are you familiar with this with this movement that he was referencing? Tell, tell me more about what he was speaking. What, what he was saying is that, that not only do they want to, that parents 
shouldn't have the right to choose their school, but they should have more ownership in choosing the students' classes. So that, you know, in a traditional Catholic school, you're kind of, your classes are set. You're taking, you know, freshman this, freshman that, and, and you don't have a lot of choice. He was talking about a movement. He's a big proponent of online education. So we obviously are fans of Governor Bush here at Catholic Virtual. But he was saying that with technology today, with online courses, families, you know, if you've got two students at Bishop Ireton in Virginia that want Mandarin, they should offer Mandarin. Um, so that's that's what he was pushing uh, for families to have a wider selection of courses, especially as you get into your older years. But also, you know, sometimes in our Catholic elementary schools, kids blow through the math curriculum and they should have access to, you know, freshman algebra in eighth grade if they have blown through the curriculum. So that, that was his premise. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. And I, I you know, I, full disclosure, I, uh, my last teaching gig in the classroom uh, was... Uh, in 2015, and I was the last German teacher at Christian Brothers High School, Sacramento, California. So we, uh, you know, the, the enrollment had declined, and we ended up closing down a program that had been around for decades um, in, you know, in favor of in favor of Mandarin Chinese, actually. So, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, Nico, you've seen this, too, in the schools you work with, that, you know, things come and go, and there might be an uptick in interest in one area. So, yeah, we put German bed in Sacramento, but it doesn't mean there was an interest in the district uh of 23 schools the brothers had for germans so you know i just uh, you know kudos for you to to trying to help problem solve that because you know maybe there's not like you said not enough demand in one site for that program but you know, across 23 schools is there enough for a german class or even class five i'm guessing there probably is well and um you know today 50 percent of university courses are either online or blended and so I would argue that if you aren't offering some sort of online courses, you're not college prep anymore. And this is, you know, another way to to offer the online courses is to offer more courses for families to choose. You're right. I'm sure in every high school, every Catholic high school in America, there are a couple families who would love German. But you're right. You can't run a German program. You can't have a German teacher for two kids. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Or, or other things, you know, like around AI, you know, courses in AI. That's, again, two, three kids want it. You can now... And, and I think this is where Governor Bush was saying you, you should be offering a wider selection to attract and retain students in this competitive market that we're in. Yeah, just um, to piggyback off that as well, um, like you were saying, with new new technology and new courses like AI and even some engineering courses uh, or even computer classes where kids are learning how to build games and code and things like that, um, giving, you know, giving kids the option uh, in Catholic schools just to add that course into their, you know, into the curriculum, I think is is awesome. So I think the school choice is a interesting topic to get into. Yeah, and another phenomenon we're watching really closely is the evolution of the kinds of schools. By the way, you know, so I mean, I, and I, I'm sure you've discussed this with other guests that post World War II, the Catholic. Or Catholics went mainstream by entering into this college prep movement that really dominates our high schools in, in Catholic education. We're very proud of that. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, for, for Irish Catholics and Italian and Polish Catholics of the generation, you know, coming out of the out of the war, you know, college prep was you know, the fast track to the middle class that those that generation of families accessed very successfully. But you know, I, I look at the program that my oldest son is, and he's doing cloud computing at junior college. And I asked asked the counselor, like, well, what's uh, and he's doing very well 
very well with the curriculum. And I asked, well, what's the biggest challenge for kids in this program? And that's, well, finishing it because they get job offers before they're done. <laughs> um, you know, there's a tremendous demand for new kinds of jobs that demand different kinds of college or tertiary level preparation than what we would have seen in 1970. And so, um, you know, that's a really interesting for us too. We have, we have friends in Galveston, Houston and other dioceses that are looking at, um, one could call them trade schools, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I mean, these are high paying, high tech, stable middle-class jobs um, that might be something a little bit different with the curriculum than, than traditional college prep, at least the way we've been doing it. So, you know, for us as the association, we're, um, you know, the, the church is really a grassroots church and, you know, we're trying to pay close attention to what our, what our members are doing with, with innovation like that too. That's great. That's great. And kind of leading into this, um, is what, what are your thoughts on micro schools, uh, whether in Catholic institutions or, or just in general? That's a great question. You know, we're, I mean, first of all, I'm a big fan. Sacramento was a rural or is a rural diocese, uh, not just an urban one. So it's 42,000 square miles. And so when I was superintendent there, um, we had most of our schools in four counties and that left another 16 across this huge expanse of Northern California. Um, and so, you know, micro schools could take a couple of different forms. Uh, you know, we uh, have a school as small as Our Lady of Lords School in, in Calusa, California, that has 60 schools. And uh, you know, when I came to the association, I learned that's really not unique. There's uh, about a quarter of membership. So about a quarter of our Catholic schools, as of two years ago, had an enrollment of 150 kids or less. So they qualify as a micro school, depending on how you wanted to define it. So things like multi-age instruction or multi-grade instruction, uh, you know, combined classes, there's, there's a lot of good traditional practice in Catholic schools across the country. Um, you know, I, I will say that, um, the, again, the back to virtual schools and virtual innovation with, uh, um, you know, with Sacramento, Rob, just speaking to this, that, you know, the idea that you might have three or four families in a parish in Alturas, California, six hours from the pastoral center and, in a, you know, and far away from any population center. I mean, the, the idea of really micro schools of kids coming together at like a parish center, but accessing an authentically Catholic education through blended learning. You know, we think that's a really exciting opportunity too for rural families. No, it is. And we're, you're right. There are a lot of dioceses that, that have a city center, but then serve so many places that don't have a high school. So Madison, Wisconsin, you know, you know, similar to Sacramento, capital of the state, big state university. They have one Catholic high school mm -hmm. in the entire diocese of Madison. They now have two. They've got an online high school that is serving about 15 or 20 students out in the rural areas that don't have access to Edgewood High School in downtown Madison. So it is, um, you know, you guys, Sacramento, are certainly the leader in that, the first one. But there are now five of these out there that are serving sort of rural um, Catholic families that want a Catholic high school. You know, they often have the elementary because you're right, it's 100 kids, 150 kids, but it's hard to do a high school at that. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. And Nico, I just wanted to add on to that, uh, your, your initial question. You know, I think one point of concern for us for micro schools is, um, you know, nationally, this is a movement. There's not a lot of colleges that specialize in multi-age instruction mm -hmm. or pedagogy for teachers and teacher preparation. So like if I had one thing on my wish list, to support all that, it would be more 
teacher preparation available you know, through colleges or online or elsewhere for teaching multi-grade classrooms. You know, it's uh, the uh, University of Nevada at Reno, for example, was one of the few on the West Coast that I found that as of a few years ago, uh, still had really good preparation in how to teach in a one-room schoolhouse, That's which in rural Nevada is a thing, right? And there's, uh, you know, you can get a really good edu education in a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, but, you know, the, the teacher has to have, uh, you know, a different set of tools or skills than, you know, a person that's teaching 30 kids in one grade um, with synchronous instruction. So, uh, you know, the, the one thing on my wish list would be a little bit more um, support in higher ed. And looking at this question, how do we prepare teachers to be really good micro school teachers? That's really interesting. I'd never thought about that, Lincoln. That's that's fascinating. And we had Father Dennis, your, your colleague at the ACCU, representing the Association of American Colleges, Catholic Colleges and Universities. And he, we asked him what the greatest threat to the Catholic university is. And it was fascinating. I was not expecting this, but he said, it's Google you, <laughs> which gets to your, your point about the program your oldest son is in. Uh, many corporations now have post-secondary courses. So if you go to Google you and you take, I forget what he said, two or three courses and you pass, you're guaranteed a job at Google. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a little threatening to Marquette University or to Santa Clara University that um, if, and, and he was naming others like Goldman Sachs and not just the tech companies. And uh, a lot of companies are not happy with the products they're getting out of our universities. So they're offering courses that train young people to, uh, to be in their employment, which is uh, an interesting answer from Father Dennis. The biggest threat to and Catholic universities is Google U. And Lincoln, uh, you mentioned yeah. a couple of events that are coming uh, up uh, go ahead, this year. I know you mentioned one in October, and then you also said you do an annual convention. Uh, I know we, I know I've seen an NCA site that there's one coming up next year, I believe. Uh, I think you said around Easter time. So can you just explain a little bit more on that? Uh, just to refresh. The exactly. Piece. Yeah, happy to talk about it. So we have um, two upcoming, or we have two major events every year. Uh, our October event, which is going to be from the uh, 22nd to the 25th of October in Raleigh, North Carolina, is called the Catholic Leadership Summit. And so that's where we gather superintendents and associate superintendents and uh, network leaders and higher ed leaders uh, to, to come together for a, um, a three days uh, around um, you know leadership level questions. You know, the two topics we're tackling this year there are uh, Latino and Hispanic uh, engagement and enrollment. And we'll have our friends from Notre Dame and Boston College and LMU leading that conversation. And then we're also looking at hiring for mission and, and um, recruitment practices. You know, so the, where do we find that next generation of, of mission-centered educators and leaders? So those are the two big topics there. And then, yeah, every in this so this coming Easter week, so April, April of 2024, we're going to have our annual convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so that's a four day gathering of uh, teachers, of principals, and that's school, really school and instructional and, and ministry focused. Uh, so we'll, uh, you know, we've in the past, we've drawn as many as 10 to 15,000. Uh, coming back from COVID, we went from 2,000 to 4,000 to we're fully expecting to surpass that in Pittsburgh this year. Um, so it'll be a big citywide convention of, of Catholic educators coming together. In Raleigh, uh, there's a great school with a great story that I hope you guys will highlight, Cardinal Gibbons. 
1999, it was down to 200 students. And the bishop called in uh, an order of nuns and, and the Christian brothers, and they uh, jump-started it. It is now over capacity at 1,600 students. Wow. Uh, 300 over capacity, literally. Um, some great buildings. And one of the great things is they moved the campus ministry center from sort of back near the administrative offices right up front. So every student that walks into that school, faith, service, leadership, huge letters in the campus ministries right in the front of the school. So I hope you can um, uh, include Cardinal Gibbons somehow in your, your CLS convention in Raleigh. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to it. Well, Lincoln, I want to respect your time. You've got a big job at leading all these Catholic schools across the country. So thank you for coming on the next class. And we close out every, uh, every conversation we have here with one final question, which is, who was your greatest teacher and why? That's a great question. The teacher that made the biggest impact on me uh, is, and I, I would say my mother, but she never actually taught me in a classroom. Well, she was a mm. teacher. Uh, from high school, definitely Earl Desmond. You know, he uh, he was my he was a social studies teacher at Christian Brothers High School, Sacramento. And the reason he made such an impact is when I was graduating, you know, he said, uh, "You're probably going to go into business and make a lot of money, but you know, if you if you taught, you could really make a difference." And so uh, every time I had that invitation to come into education, that little voice stuck in my head, and it was his. So you know, just very uh, like I said, I, I think that that was a vocational moment for me, and I'll always be grateful to him for that. That's great. Well, Lincoln, thank you for joining us on the next class. Nico, thank you for helping us here, joining us and for producing all of these podcasts. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, please rate us, give us a thumbs up or a five star, share it with your friends. We're sort of new, even though our fourth season still relatively new here. And um, thank you for joining us. Hope you have a great day and hope to see you again at the next class.